the importance of having space in that building and taking up space for all the years that we weren't in there, you know, and the, the harm that's been done to our, our communities. That taking of space really does mean something. And, you know, we're trying to be in a position where we're working to solve issues in our community. And whoever wants to help with that, you know, we appreciate that. And so it was really finding good people on both sides that wanted to work together to solve problems. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet for all. Our aim is to provoke productive dialogue, elevate community voices, and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. I'm your host, Lara Tomov. The Iroquois Confederacy refers to a group of indigenous tribes who have lived in today's northeastern North America for thousands of years. Long before the founding fathers of the United States, the Iroquois Confederacy had a participatory democracy government with executive, legislative, and judicial branches. The great law of peace was the constitution of the Iroquois Confederacy, and it included 117 articles. The framework of government in the Iroquois Confederacy is said to have inspired Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and other founders as they wrote the Constitution. Franklin directly references the Iroquois Confederacy multiple times in his writing. The United States founders adopted the Iroquois nation symbol, the bald eagle, as the new nation's national symbol. It's also evidenced that the social and political organization of America's indigenous societies impacted the thinking of early women suffragists, including Susan B. Anthony, working to get equal representation and the right to vote. They observed that in some indigenous tribes and societies, women were included in tribal leadership, could hold political office, managed land, had spiritual authority within the community, and children belonged to the mother's clan. For thousands of years, long before colonization and European contact, Indigenous peoples of these lands govern themselves through various practices, each tribe having its own unique tribal laws, cultural ways, and kinship systems. Despite systemic and direct attempts of erasure, these methods of self-government and cultural lifeways continue across the country today. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Patrick Yawaki Peltier, co-founder of Red Medicine LLC, which is a native civic engagement service. Patrick was present throughout Montana's 68th legislative session, which met this year from January through May. Patrick will share with us important information and his personal experience in the session as a native person and policy advocate, and also his calls for improved engagement and approaches in our state legislative process. Patrick will share messages that are intended for tribal members to gain information and entry points for advocacy, and also messages for non-native folks to gain valuable insight and perspective. Like many of our episodes on Stories for Action attempt to do, I hope that no matter your demographic, you can gain some insight about others or even yourself through these conversations. As I believe, whether you agree with someone or not, it benefits us to be more informed about the challenges and humanized perspectives of those that we share our world with. That want to understand others' perspectives is a concept I believe our society shies away from too often these days and has led to our current state of polarization and inability to move beneficial ideas, policies, and relationships forward. 
Now, before we get to our conversation with Patrick, I just want to put out some information to create context. And please note, what I will share is simply introductory, and I encourage folks to dig deeper into these elements. You can find some links in this episode's show notes for some starting points. Now for some background. Prior to prominent colonial contact beginning in the 1500s, it is determined there were over a thousand indigenous tribes or individual civilizations throughout what is now the United States, including Alaska. That's not to count the many more whose homelands ranged in what is now Canada or Mexico. All of these tribes had, and due to efforts from within tribal communities, many still do have, their own unique languages, food practices, values, dress, cultural expressions, and methods of governance, which continue to be important to their individual and collective identity, despite many changes and outside efforts to fully assimilate tribal members over the last two centuries. One of these efforts, in the form of policy, is the Religious Crimes Code of 1883, which made native cultural practices completely illegal. And this wasn't overturned until 95 years later, in 1978. Today, of the more than a thousand indigenous civilizations in the area, now known as the United States, there are 574 nationally recognized tribes. Within the state where we are located, Montana, today there are 12 recognized tribes in the state, though many more existed and utilized this landscape for thousands of years. The seven reservations in Montana include the Crow Reservation, home to the Absalaga or Crow Tribe, Northern Cheyenne Reservation, home of the Northern Cheyenne or Tsitsistas, the Fort Peck Reservation, home to the Canoe Paddler and Red Bottom Bands of the Assiniboine and the Hunkpapa, Sisseton, Wapaton, and Yankton groups of the Sioux Nation, the Fort Belknap Reservation, home of the Aani, or Grovant, and the Nakoda, or Assiniboine. The Rocky Boy Reservation, home to the Chippewa Cree, or Nehiawak. The Blackfeet Reservation, home to the Blackfeet Nation, Amskapi Pakani, a band of the Blackfoot Confederacy. And the Flathead Reservation, home to the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, which include the Bitterroot Salish, Kasanka, or Kootenai, and the Kalispe, or Pondere. The Little Shell Chippewa are one of these 12 recognized tribes of Montana, and they're a tribe of the Ojibwe people. Due to conflicts with federal authorities in the 19th century, the Little Shell Chippewa went without a reservation or designated land base, and it wasn't until 2019 that the tribe was granted federal recognition. There's a link in this episode's show notes to an informational document from the Montana Office of Public Instruction, which gives introductory background on Montana tribal communities. Despite the previously mentioned ways in which indigenous governance influenced this country's founding fathers and these lands being their homelands for thousands of years prior to European arrival, native people in this country were not recognized as citizens until 1924. 148 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. But even with this federal granting, many states did not recognize tribal members as state citizens and withheld their abilities to vote. The Voting Rights Act of 1965, Section 2, provided legal protection from discrimination, finally solidifying Native people's right to vote. 
The Indian Civil Rights Act of 1968 granted most, but not all, of the same protections to Native Americans as what other U.S. citizens found in the Bill of Rights, such as the right to freedom of religion, justification of lawful imprisonment, and the right to a trial by jury. That wasn't until 1968. All of these laws and bills that would advance rights for Native Americans came about due to grassroots organizing and advocacy from within Native communities. And these grassroots movements continue today, working to empower and advocate for justice and equality for Native communities. One of these grassroots entities was the American Indian Movement, or AIM, which was founded in 1968 in Minneapolis to initially address issues facing newly urbanized tribal members. A decade before AIM's formation, in 1956, the federal government passed the Indian Relocation Act, which promised good jobs and housing for natives who would move from reservations into cities around the country. But many of the thousands who migrated only found low-wage labor, substandard housing, discrimination, violence, and disconnect from their lands and cultures. The facts and history of Indian law, or the field of law covering the relationship between tribal governments and federal and state governments, and the timelines pertaining to specific tribes' government relations, is complex. And this podcast is not the one place to gather your information, so I encourage you to further your own research. But going back to the 1800s, when tribes entered into treaties with U.S. governments, exchanging tribal lands for federal protections and services, the foundation of Indian law was established. Although, especially historically, there are several accounts of broken treaties, poor language interpretations of what was being signed, or laws being pushed through when tribal leaders were not present to sign or authorize themselves. But there have been many examples, especially in more recent history, of positive collaborations between tribal and state and federal government on policy, and many conscious efforts of trust and relationship building, as well as many examples of legislation that is fully led and championed by tribal members or tribal governments. When it comes to governance, the U.S. Constitution recognizes tribal nations as sovereign governments, just like other countries or individual states have sovereignty. This includes the right for each tribe to do things such as establish their own form of government, their own law enforcement, and court systems. And as citizens of the United States, tribal members have every right to hold office, vote, give public comment, and otherwise engage with the political process of city, county, state, and federal government. And both Native tribes and Native individuals pay taxes. In Montana, Native Americans make up about 7% of the population, with residents residing both within tribal lands and many also off-reservation, including urban areas. The 2020 census showed that nationally, about 87% of those who identify as Native live outside tribal lands. Also in Montana, tribal reservations make up about 9% of the land base. Those statistics are important, especially as we later speak about the importance of Montana legislators to hold at least introductory knowledge on Indian law and cultural approaches, to sufficiently serve their own constituents and the ecosystems that make up the state. Non-natives can and do reside on reservations, 
some of which whose lineage dates back to the Dawes Act, or General Allotment Act, of 1887. When reservations were defined in the 1800s, from the federal government's perspective, they thought that Native communities were not, quote, using the land in ways that the government saw as productive meaning tribes that were not farming cultures, were not plowing the land for agriculture, they weren't extracting the resources such as mining or timber. So the federal government passed the Dawes Act, which took lands that were already designated for the tribes through treaties and allotted a plot of land within the reservation to each tribal family, then put the remaining reservation land up for grabs to non-native settlement. This resulted in the loss of about 90 million acres nationally, of reservation land, land that was promised to tribes and transferred it to non-native ownership, a land reduction of more than half of what the treaties had allotted. On top of the loss in land base, this act of forcing tribal communities to live isolated on separate plots of land from one another, rather than the communal way of life they had practiced for millennia, had strong impacts on the culture and life ways of tribal members. The efforts of tribal members and communities to carry on cultural lifeways through the generations, despite the forces battling against them, are evident today, and often vibrantly so, with resurgences of things like cultural foodways, ceremonies, language revitalization, and social systems from economics to medical care that integrate approaches that are unique and appropriate for a specific tribal community. And there are also those who carry on the torches of advocacy, continuing to push for equality and the betterment of their people. As I mentioned earlier, today we'll hear from Patrick Yoaki Peltier, whose advocacy, he says, began and continues on at a very grassroots level. He co-founded Red Medicine LLC, which provides tribal civic engagement services for all Native communities. The work includes informing the public of policy measures and public comment periods, registering people to vote, and other methods of increasing civic engagement for Native folks. In addition, Patrick served as a lobbyist for the Blackfeet Nation at the 2021 Montana Legislative Session, and again this past spring in the 2023 session. Patrick wanted to share some of his experience during this past session. As an Indigenous person and resident of Montana, and as an overall community advocate. Patrick is a descendant of Zuni Pueblo, Turtle Mountain Anishinaabe, Fort Peck Assiniboine Sioux, and White Bear Nakota Cree. He resides on the Flathead Reservation in Montana, which is home to the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. Patrick and his wife, Regina Madplume, who is of Blackfeet descent and an enrolled member of the Kootenai tribe of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, co-founded the People's Food Sovereignty Program which calls on tribal self-determination to increase food independence, preserve cultural lifeways, and decrease food insecurity. They have a traditional meats distribution program, distribute supplies and support for home gardens, conduct outreach and education, and so much more. Moving on to the Montana Legislative Session, something that's notable about this past session and the current makeup of Montana's State House and Senate is currently the Republicans hold a supermajority in both the House and the Senate. Republicans hold 34 seats in the Senate to Democrats 16 and 68 seats in the House to Democrats 32. 
This is the first time in the history of Montana's modern constitution that Republicans hold a supermajority in both the House and the Senate. Since the early days of Montana statehood, it's been considered a purple state, with a fluctuating balance of Republican and Democrat Party members. Since the state's early days, the Democratic Party has been well represented with the presence of union workers, such as miners, and the historical leaning of the agricultural community to the Democratic Party. To show the contrast to today's Republican Party dominance in the Montana legislature, not too long ago, in the first decade of the 2000s, the House and the Senate either were or hovered close to being exactly split between the parties. There are currently 11 tribal members holding seats in the House and Senate. These 11 legislators make up the Montana American Indian Caucus. The Montana legislature meets once every two years, from January to May, and anyone I've spoken with who was present or involved in this year's session agrees that it was especially intense, as one way I've heard it put. The session saw an especially high flood of bills introduced, 1,698 bills in total, which meant things moved quickly, allowing little time for information gathering, discussion, public comment, and thoughtful debate. Also worth noting, in the first month of this session, the Montana Freedom Caucus was officially formed, which mirrors counterparts formed in other states and on a federal level. The Montana Freedom Caucus declares themselves as a unified front with much deeper conservative values than the state's other Republican Party members. This caucus holds 14 named members of the legislature and more who the group's chair says do not want to identify themselves. Okay, I apologize for all the verbiage, but these topics are complex and require context before we step onto this very unique political stage. And hopefully some of this can create some background information for folks that can help in a lot of different areas. Patrick lives on the Flathead Reservation with his family, which is located north of Missoula, Montana. The Flathead Reservation has a majority population of non-native residents. This non-native majority is influenced by a variety of factors, including its proximity to the city of Missoula, the presence of the recreational destination of Flathead Lake and other areas within the reservation, and the lineage of those who settled on land here after the passing of the Dawes or General Allotment Act, when land here was opened up to non-native settlement. The valleys on this reservation are ideal for agriculture, so it became a particularly popular area for homesteading. This non-native majority can lead to things sometimes getting contentious when it comes to the tribes having authority on water or land management. But these things have their legal groundings in Indian law and early treaties, which, as Patrick will discuss later, shows the significance in policymakers in this region having familiarity with Indian law. Before I get into asking Patrick about the state legislative session, I begin by asking him about his advocacy work on a more local or county level in the counties that overlap the Flathead Reservation, where he and his family live, and what types of dynamics he sees in those spaces. I mean, living on the Flathead Reservation and, and the importance of the resources here, the natural resources such as water, been able to provide testimony for um, the irrigation district um, and the water compacts in the area. Trying to advocate for uh, more tribal management of those systems 
um, since they do uh, run off the natural resources of the tribe, that there needs to be kind of more of a balance in these kind of uh, mitigations between the, between the state and, and the tribes. Uh, but most of the work is going that we started with was uh, like get out the vote, native get out the vote efforts for uh, tribal households uh, in the Flathead Reservation, the Blackfeet Reservation. Really trying to educate and empower tribal voters on the reservations so that uh, they understand uh, their candidates, you know, who uh, has the best interests for them. But also educating them on the policies uh, so that they're aware of uh, what decisions have been made, how they're how they are affected and uh, how either if they're bad or good, you know, how we can either change them for the better or, or try to fight to get rid of those. And do you want to speak to on that with the get out the vote, just with your and your team's efforts here on the Flathead Reservation, the impact that you saw in the last few elections, right, of what the presence of you and your team created as far as increased numbers of voters and kind of what that presence entailed? Yeah, and I mean, all the work that we've done really was on, you know, the education that we've received from the communities that we serve. Uh, definitely um, elders who have experienced the get out the vote work or advocacy, you know, prior to us even engaging in those communities. Um, learning about, you know, the hardships that they faced so that we could be able to do this work today. A lot of times we hear from elders about, you know, back in the day here on the Flathead Reservation where they would get singled out, um, violence would occur, you know, assaults. You know, that's something that, you know, we don't necessarily see today in the work that we do, but we know that that's where we're coming from, that the work that we're doing here. And, you know, being a minority um, as a Native American on a reservation, you know, we have to try extra hard on this reservation to ensure that we have a voice. And, you know, what, when we go door to door, a lot of the advocacy that we say is, you know, when we work together, we can, you know, solve the problem, our problems, you know, collectively. Being the largest minority in the state, you know, we really elevate these individuals to office that, you know, better serve our communities and, um, you know, really provide an alternative voice to what we're seeing right now, this, you know, hateful rhetoric. And I think, you know, what we see right now with the, the Montana State Legislature was kind of just a lack of attention to the, in this last election cycle. Um, I, that's what I put my money on. You know, this next election is a tester election, a presidential election. You know, this is going to be, you know, much more fu- uh, better funded effort and people's attentions will be there. And I think, you know, utilizing ourselves as a, as a largest minority, we swing elections. And, and that's where our political power lies. Patrick and his team with Native Get Out the Vote engage in a variety of work to remove barriers for Native folks to vote in statewide and national elections. Year-round, they show up at events and go door-to-door to talk to people one-on-one, get them registered to vote, inform them about ballot measures and candidates, and if needed, they'll safely deliver ballots to ballot drop boxes, which is essential, as he will touch on further, Because in these areas on reservations, it can be a long distance from a ballot drop box location or even a post office. And it can be difficult for elders or those without a vehicle or extra gas money or work schedules that can keep folks from making the trip to deliver their ballot. On top of that, November can be a horrendous time to drive on Montana roads. So Patrick and his team work to make engaging in the voting process as accessible as possible. As is the case in other states around the country, 
Montana is seeing a push in efforts that increase those barriers with efforts to remove same-day voting registration, meaning folks have to make that sometimes long trip twice, once to register and again another day to deliver their ballot. Or there's been efforts to remove the ability for an entity like Native Get Out the Vote to deliver ballots for those who can't deliver their ballots themselves. There's also the concept of redistricting, or changing the boundary lines of voting districts, which, depending on the demographic that lives there, has great impact on which way elections lean. I asked Patrick to speak to some of these efforts and how they impact the ability of Native communities to engage in elections. So I'd like probably start with like the redistricting process because it's been an ongoing process and definitely something that's unique for Montana in comparison to other states is that um, we have Indian majority districts which are mandated in the redistricting process to ensure that tribal communities, their lines are drawn to ensure that they have a voice in school board all the way up to federal elections. Protecting that is crucial. I see attempts at the redistricting process to ensure that you know our communities are divided. We want to ensure that our communities stay intact um, when that process is happening. And then continuing get out the vote efforts, you know, going door to door, or um, you know, day of election services. We hear from tribal voters, you know, this like type of uh, disenfranchisement and uh, voter apathy that you know, that ties in with our intergenerational traumas, you know, our relationships with these non-Indian governments, treaties, broken treaties, uh, stolen lands, uh, removal, forced removal. You know, these are all the actions that, you know, that even though, you know, we're living in in 2023 and, you know, everyone's got cars and, you know, McDonald's and Walmarts on this reservation, that, you know, they still hold on to those, those feelings. And, it's kind of getting them educated and empowered enough to make the decision that they deserve to, to make decisions on, on their community, uh, choose leaders that represent their interests, their homes, their communities. That, you know, that's something that in, it's an ongoing process in a lot of houses, but I think you know, the work that we do, we don't just show up one time. We, you know, it's a repetitive thing. And you know, sometimes just being involved in the community shows trust that, you know, we try to project, you know, that you can trust us and we'll be there, you know, to ensure your votes counted or whatever is needed. And that helps ensure that they're participating in the process. Even the picking up the ballot process, you know, we throw Indian taco feeds throughout the reservation and, and invite anybody and everybody to come and see what we're doing and enjoy a taco. Um, if they need to, we we uh, will take their ballot and deliver for them. So, you know, we see the issues. We, you know, the issues have face. That I think that's where our organization is really working best is when we can, you know, when it becomes holistic in a sense, and we're not only arguing for policy but getting people to engage in the process, choose leaders that you know that will have a better outcome for them in terms of policy. You know, my past two sessions. Um, seen attempts at silencing us through that ballot collection process. This year, we were this session, we were able to kill a bill before it was even introduced. You know that was very powerful because you know we've gone through quite a few lawsuits. You know tribes um, against the state, whether it be you know uh, early on uh, ensuring that natives had a seat on our school boards or 
ensuring that there's satellite polling locations on reservations or fighting against this attempt at uh, stopping us from collecting ballots. It, it, yeah, it just gives that trust where a tribal member doesn't necessarily have to go to a church, you know, to go vote, that they can come to us and we'll make sure that their vote's counted. Sure, yeah. And that reality that, you know, even just distance to a location to register and then to, again, self-deliver their ballot, that the distance can be large for people who are working, may not have, you know, for gas money, and then also in a time of year where weather can be horrendous, you know, and so it just means the difference of the vote happening or not. Yeah, and, and for example, old agency in Dixon, um, we made the, the drop-off of a few ballots, um, which is on the border of Sanders in Lake County. When considering timelines of, of getting your ballot in and counted, you can't mail in your ballot less than a week before um, the election. And so it's crucial that there is a service for those old agency tribal members who need to get their ballot counted. So we did that and it was, an, it was a 160 mile round trip. And when we got to um, Thompson Falls, there was, you know, Trump flag, you know, trucks driving back and forth down, down Main Street there near the courthouse. You know, we take the brunt of most of that stuff so that these voters don't have to as right. well. You know, and the distance is one thing, but, you know, when, when you get there and then you see that, I would only imagine how discouraging that would be. Shifting to the Montana State Legislative Session, which Patrick was present for from beginning to end, January to May of this year, 2023. Patrick wore many hats. Through Red Medicine LLC, he acted as a voice box for Indigenous issues that came up in the session, informing the public, primarily through social media, about each bill and how to engage with public comment, how to contact representatives, or to speak at hearings. He also worked as a full-time lobbyist for the Blackfeet tribe. And though he was contracted by the Blackfeet Nation, the 110 bills that he and the Montana American Indian Caucus testified for or against will have major impact on all Montanans, especially tribal communities around the state. I asked Patrick what this work and the session entailed for him personally. So I'm just really experienced everything <laughs> that the session is and, and how I can, you know, relate to my past. It was like high school or, you know, um, a lot of people act like they're still in high school there. Um, but it really did have that kind of vibe. Something that I learned uh, early on, you know, learning from House Representative uh, Frank Smith. He said in the 70s there was a bill to try to ban Native Americans from the building. So it's not relatively too long ago that, you know, they were attempting to silence us that way. And the importance of having space in that building and taking up space for all the years that we weren't in there, you know, and the, the harm that's been done to our, our communities. Um, that taking of space, you know, really does mean something. And, and, you know, we were very recepted by state uh, senators and House reps, uh, Democrats and Republicans alike, and, and very well. You know, they uh, respected us and, and our advocacy. Having a voice there provided education to a lot of state congresspeople and ensuring that we're, you know, providing that, that type of advocacy that, you know, in the last minute where someone was going to make a bad decision of a, for, against us, that maybe we changed their mind, you know. And whether it be through testimony or, you know, lobbying in the halls, that's what, you know, I did. I was 
essentially the only uh, Native American day to day representing tribes in an official capacity. Uh, and so it's putting a face, you know, to a lot of this, these either attempts against us or, you know, providing like uh, for our MMIP bills, you know, that this is what Indian country looks like and, you know, we're going missing. You know, a lot of people, a lot of uh, people said that, that that was just powerful enough, you know, to get them to pay attention to what, what was going on. Just a couple of notes here. When Patrick mentions MMIP, it references the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples Movement, which advocates to bring attention to something that has been happening for well over a century, and whose advocacy efforts have been taking place from within Indigenous communities and groups for several decades. This movement brings attention to the high ratio of Indigenous peoples whose disappearances or murders are not given the same resources or law enforcement attention as other demographics. Next, Patrick will mention the Republican supermajority that currently exists in the Montana state legislation. The supermajority means the party's representative numbers exceed that of a simple majority. You know, being in a supermajority, seeing even the contention that was in the Republican Party, you know, we're trying to not necessarily play both sides, but, you know, be in a position where we're working for, to solve issues in our community. And whoever wants to uh, help with that, you know, we appreciate that and support that. And so it was really finding, you know, good people on both sides that wanted to work together to solve problems. And, you know, you were doing a lot of social media presence and information for, for folks and constituents, um, as well as testifying. Were you also meeting, like, one-on-one with senators or congressmen in their offices or... Yeah, in corners of hallways or how that works. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. And, and for example, my first uh, major bill was Senate Bill 120. A note here, Senate Bill 120 was to establish the Chief Earl Old Person Memorial Highway to apply to the stretch of Highway 89 that runs through the Blackfeet Reservation. Chief Earl Old Person, Chief of the Blackfeet Nation, passed away at the age of 92 in October of 2021 and was the longest-serving elected tribal leader in the country and one of the longest-serving elected officials in the world. The bill was officially sponsored by Senator Susan Weber of Browning, Montana. After its introduction in committee, it was tabled, but then eventually passed the Senate, though 14 senators voted against it. My first task was to try to flip Senate Republicans who voted no against it, and I had to make my rounds, you know, and learned really fast, you know, that these people will smile in your face but stab you in the back right away. Again, it's meeting those people <laughs> that are open enough to, you know, find middle ground. Sure. You know, that that was an early opportunity to learn who the Freedom Caucus was because that, that was our biggest our biggest uh, pushback was, was from those individuals. I mean, that bill specifically is something even, like Senator Susan Weber said, thought it would be an easy, you know, passing through that bill and just kind of how alarming you know, it was to have any pushback, let alone the amount of pushback. Because can you tell us about how you've been present in sessions before yeah. and if and what the overall differences were of this session? Um, I know even, you know, folks in the Republican Party have said the session was different. There's a very different domination of presence. Um, if you can just say what that was from your perspective. 
I would say, you know, with the, the saying, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And the supermajority had great power this session in the Republican Party. There's just this, a faction, Freedom Caucus, who is taking this national rhetoric and trying to make it Montana values. And, you know, the reality is, is that Montana um, has been kind of like a purple state, Republican, Democrat, you know, balance. The way that that faction taking on that national rhetoric divides the Republican Party from people who are so dead set in their opposition or their discrimination or, you know, whatever the Freedom Caucus represents, that there's people who are trying to work forward for Montana. And those, those Freedom Caucus individuals were dredging the feet for the Republican Party, who were trying to work with Democrats too as well to get stuff done. You know, that, that was a reality throughout the, throughout the whole session. And do you, because, you know, in your experience, since you're also going door to door, you're within your community, you hear firsthand feedback from community members um, when it comes to voting. Do you feel that it's not, you know, a matter of like, oh, I'll vote for whoever's of this party. It's like, I'll listen to both, you know, and, and the, the, the party label is not as important as just really having somebody that stands up for their community, their values, their rights. You know, there's real importance of candidates not just showing up every two years, you know, and, and the party's not showing up every just two years for a vote. Encouraging tribal members to participate. And, you know, the Democratic Party created these uh, tribal uh, central committees so that they could provide policy platform at the state convention. You know, trying to find avenues to get uh, our communities more engaged past the ballot box part of the session. You know, um, trying to get more natives involved as candidates, you know. And so um, we're just trying to encourage parties to not just show up every two years. Sure. I think that's the foundation of what I hear from individual voters. Shifting back to the state legislative session, I asked Patrick to speak to bills that pertain specifically to Indigenous rights and issues, starting with House Bill 317, which called to codify the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, which is an act on a national level. House Bill 317 would make the federal protections of ICWA a Montana state law. A very brief background on the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, It was enacted on a federal level in 1978 in response to a crisis affecting American Native children, families, and tribes. Throughout the 20th century, large numbers of Native children were being separated from their parents, extended families, and tribal communities by state child welfare and private adoption agencies, often without requiring evidence-based justification. This contributed to systemic efforts to assimilate Native people across the country. Research has found that 25 to 35 percent of all Native children were being removed from their homes, and of these, 85 percent were placed outside of their family or tribal communities, even when fit and willing relatives were available. Both the short-term and multi-generational impacts of these practices are immeasurable, but led to tribal members being disconnected from their culture and identity, creating psychological impacts, as well as Native children experiencing abuse or discrimination in their adopted homes, communities, or within the foster system. 
When ICWA was passed in 1978, it created several parameters when a Native child has to be adopted out. Prioritizing that child staying with other direct relatives or staying within their specific tribal community. The fate of ICWA on a national level was recently challenged in a Supreme Court case, Hallen v. Burkine. Just a month ago, in June, the court ruled in favor of upholding ICWA. But this wasn't the first time ICWA had been challenged, and it likely won't be the last. In this Montana House Bill 317, would ensure that the principles of the act remained law within Montana, regardless of what happens on a national level. Here, Patrick speaks about that bill. So, you know, our attempts at, at ICWA, which was, you know, largely spearheaded by Jonathan Windyboy, uh, ACLU, and a few other uh, private lawyers who got the bill um, drafted, which, you know, send a bunch of love to them for their work that they did. It was a long process getting House Bill 317 passed. There was a lot of, you know, belief that if we're going to have policy that it should be for all. You know, the, the reality is is that Native Americans and, and definitely Native Americans, uh, Native American children in Montana um, get displaced at a higher rate than any other ethnicity. And um, because there's no language codified at the, at the state level to ensure that the, the process is, uh, is being done accordingly, uh, ensuring that tribes are engaged when a, when a child goes through the CPS uh, process and that you know, all tribes are contacted to find out if th- that child belongs to that tribe. You know, that didn't ex- exist before House Bill 317. So a lot of like, our advocacy is for the Blackfeet tribe was two children were displaced uh, since the beginning of the year from when, the, when we had testimony. And, you know, that, that's a reality to, you know, today with, you know, even with federal ICWA in place. And so passing uh, House Bill 317 was long overdue. And it was, you know, definitely dealing with these uh, House representatives or senators who wanted to mucky the water with that type of rhetoric, you know, putting a, a stick in the wheel. It took almost a month and a half to get, uh, to get the bill out of, out of uh, the Senate. So it was just sitting there, and and we're waiting on senators to give their amendments, and it was just like, uh, why do these you know non-Indian individuals believe that they should have a say in our communities? What gives them the power or ego to say that they know what's best for Indian children? Uh, the lack of consultation or engagement with Indian caucus members or tribes in the drafting of those bills, you know, it just shows, you know, their disconnect with our communities and uh, misunderstandings, even, you know, Hollywood propaganda that's fed to them too, you know. It's like, uh, why not work with us to try to solve these issues together? It was, you know, emotional along the whole process. Uh, the reality is, you know, if federal ICWA goes away there and nothing was there as a safety net, that, you know, boarding school era, those types of traumas can occur again, you know. And we're just trying to make the attempt at, through policy, <laughs> to ensure that didn't happen. 
And it's so crazy that it, it boils down to the words on a page for these children. And yeah, it was, it was emotional. And then hearing the second reading, uh, you know, the racism that occurred on the floor, uh, the prejudice, discriminatory statements, it was, it was heartbreaking to, to hear that. And then to understand the, you know, what, what could happen if this bill doesn't pass. So, you know, it was a lot of work to get those senators educated on the issue and what was crucial in that, what needed to pass. It was a lot of work, but we did it. <laughs> the bill did pass the House and the Senate and was signed into law. But it's important to note, sometimes those of us in the public can see in the news that X, Y, and Z bills passed and maybe think, oh, well, that must have had good support from all sides for it to pass. In the case of House Bill 317, the behind the scenes of this process entailed months of arduous back and forth tension. And as Patrick mentions, what came off is prejudiced rhetoric. And efforts were made to change the bill to apply to non-Native children, which would muddy the waters of the law and essentially defeat its original intent. Members of the public came from all over the state to testify in favor of House Bill 317 and publicly shared their firsthand stories of trauma and impact of situations before ICWA was enacted or since then where ICWA was not upheld. Immediately after these testimonies, a large amount of legislators still voted against the bill. Um, there was a Blackfeet woman who gave her testimony and, and her experience as an adopted, went through adoption as a child, white parents, told her story about uh, the day federal ICWA was passed and how um, her adopted parents, they were discussing how uh, Native Americans don't deserve to take care of their children, that they don't know how to take care of their children, like it's their privilege to take care of Indian children, like property almost. And then hearing senators on that committee who were offended by that story, which was crazy, you know. It's like uh, they don't want to hear that, the real facts. I mean, there's all the, you know, attacks on critical race theory and everything like that, which, you know, is, ties in with why they feel that way. But, you know, we're better when we don't repeat the wrongs in the past. They should feel that way too, unless, you know, they really are trying to obstruct our communities in a harmful way. There is another bill that I'll ask Patrick about, which has to do with the accountability of Indian education for all, which was an act passed in Montana in 1999. Indian Ed for All is meant to ensure every state citizen has the opportunity to gain a basic understanding of local history and information about Native peoples in this region. Since the late 1800s, assimilation efforts of Native children in Montana had been carried out through the establishment of different factions of Christian boarding schools, and cultural practices, even on reservations, were made illegal. All the way through to as recently as the 1990s, in public schools, including student tribal members on reservations, were not taught anything about Montana Native history or culture, including their own in the cases of tribal students. In the 70s, after efforts and testimony from folks from around the state, 
It was written into Montana's constitution that, quote, the state recognizes the distinct and unique cultural heritage of the American Indians and is committed in its educational goals to the preservation of their cultural integrity, end quote. But in the decades to follow, efforts to uphold this commitment in the public schools was poorly implemented or not implemented at all. This led to the 1999 Indian Education for All Act, which mandates all Montana public schools to incorporate curriculum to increase students' knowledge and understanding of Native culture and history. Finally, in 2005, funding was allocated for this effort and robust curriculum was and continues to be created, as well as grants allotted for schools to implement the curriculum. Patrick will speak to a bill from this past session, House Bill 338, which calls for greater accountability from schools who are given funds for Indian Ed for All curriculum to ensure that schools are indeed using the funding for this purpose. This gap in at least basic education on Native culture and history is a problem on a national level, which, on the topic of policy specifically, creates gaps on a federal policy level. The National Congress of American Indians has reported that 87% of state history standards do not mention Native American history after 1900, and 27 states have no reference to a single Native American in their K-12 curriculum. I asked Patrick if there were moments specifically in this past legislative session that proved the need for things such as Indian Ed for All to ensure that future policymakers had at least a basic understanding of Montana tribes, both historically and currently, or on concepts of tribal sovereignty. Not to mention, as policymakers in the state of Montana, to have a basic understanding of Indian law and treaty history. You know, there is a, in the, in the training, uh, that state Congress people have to go through. There's a portion that includes touching on the tribes in the state and some federal in, or some federal Indian law. Um, but this last session, which was supposed to be an hour long, only turned out to be 10 minutes. They cut off the person who was going to teach that session. Wow. And that's all dictated by the Republican Party. Um, so it was part of the actual session where they had yeah where they session. go through training yeah in the beginning you uh-huh. know before they before they go to session there's those that they have to take and it was cut off yeah and so they didn't no senators or reps received that education and so that was highly problematic for us right away right off the bat it's like oh man now we're gonna have to be teachers too as well but in in you know my testimony is how many of you can name all twelve tribes and all seven reservations, asking them who can name them, and none of them could. I mean, the only ones who could name them were Tyson Running Wolf, who was in committee, or uh, Jonathan Windy Boy, who was the sponsor. <laughs> so, you know, ensuring that whether it be the children, you know, who might become policymakers in the future, that they have that basic understanding, or ensuring that, you know, that this program exists if there are any interested. Uh, policymakers now who want to learn about the tribes that that this is ready available for them so that they have a better understanding of the world they live in you know that's where I see the importance of Indian education for all but it's also a a constitutional uh, requirement too as well so um, that's something very unique that we have in the state is you know the, the state's responsibility to uphold our cultural integrity as tribal nations we want 
non-Indian people in the state to know who they live with, you know, who they, you know, the com communities that they represent, who, who also is in those communities, that, you know, this isn't just a resort area, you know, that this is a homeland to, an, to a nation of people. You know, those are, you know, crucial understandings to have. And what the Indian Education for All bill did was it, it's putting some accountability uh, to the school districts who are um, receiving this funding. And, you know, in my experience, my wife, Regina, worked as a cultural specialist teacher for Polson School District. And, you know, the reality was is they were mostly using her as like kind of like a, a daycare. Was it K through, I think K through three or K through four? That's not what that position was made for. Putting her in like a substandard closet with a bunch of other cleaning materials. Seeing the reality at the ground level of the way that these school districts use that funding. There needs to be more accountability uh, to the process and House Bill 338 was intended to hold those schools accountable if they want to receive those dollars. I mean, that's what Jonathan Windy Boy was really pushing this session was more accountability for this funding. Other, there were some other bills too, um, showing like uh, how much funding goes to the tribes and how it's utilized. And you know, that's important data to, to have. What I see with 338 is schools that are successful at Indian Education for All can, can provide an example for other schools and really see where all the schools are at in terms of how much attention they're giving to this to this part of the curriculum. We're very fortunate to have Indian Education for All like it is in the state. 338 is just going to make it better. Right, it's just about that accountability. Yeah, and again with just having that awareness and knowledge not only for people getting into policy but just as citizens of the state. That's another thing. It's not a political divide thing. It's just a human... <laughs> you think would be a human want, you know, and it, it, it is. So just about elevating that. I go on to ask Patrick about House Bill 287, which will revise laws to fortify Montana's Indian language preservation program to establish or support language schools or incorporate it into curriculum and community education within reservations. As native languages were always exclusively oral, not being written, and multiple generations experienced forced assimilation and punishment for speaking their native language, the existence of many tribes' languages have been threatened, with some around the country being completely lost. For many communities, the remaining native speakers are among the elders of that community, and many indigenous elders were lost during COVID. Some tribes have established immersion schools of their tribe's unique language such as the Cuts Wood School within the Blackfeet Nation, creating a new generation of fluent speakers and reviving all that that symbolizes. For many concepts within native languages, there is no translation in English, and therefore within the language is held more than words. It is the understanding of your place in the world, how things in the world relate to one another, and an understanding of one's cultural identity. Yeah, my, it was House Bill 287, the Montana Indian Language Program. You know, this is a successful program that's um, really taking tribes that are losing their language keepers, uh, elders, you know, who are fluent or now are past, have passed or are passing, 
Um, definitely during COVID, we lost a lot of elders in the state. This is just providing funding, and now it's um, going to be continuous funding. They took off the sunset date on it, okay. so it's going to be continuous going forward. Okay. The successes of the program, you know, we see it on the reservation here where you have a whole school created, or even Cutswood and, and Browning, you know, that are incorporating language into school curriculum and these children are, are learning it, teaching their parents. It's a beautiful cycle and, and guaranteeing that funding, you know, provides a brighter future for tribes. You know, we heard from uh, Jonathan Windy Boy about how Rocky Boy has only a couple uh, elders left. Now, now they'll be able to uh, get their children speaking. There'll be more than just two. You know. Patrick then shares with me about bills and ongoing efforts around the distribution of federal funds allocated for infrastructure with a focus on broadband installation, which he will give some calls to action later on how policymakers on a local and state level, as well as members of the public, can engage in these efforts. Of course, this concept of broadband access is pivotal with the demands of our world today. And many who have somewhat decent access to good cellular or internet coverage may easily take it for granted. But for many rural areas, it can look very different. Access to broadband ties into everything these days. It allows for hospitals, schools, governments, colleges, and local businesses to operate. It creates online learning and telehealth opportunities. And it has an impact on our children's education, which became especially evident during the pandemic when remote learning was expected. The federal government has recently allocated billions of dollars toward the development of high-speed internet in rural and tribal communities via the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And a bill which Patrick will speak to, House Bill 804, introduced by Representative Tyson Runningwolf of Browning, sought to ensure that there was tribal and governmental oversight of private internet service provider development which is not always the case currently, and as you'll hear, can lead directly to the community itself suffering. A bill that we were working hard on, not, not necessarily a bill, but an effort was about uh, the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act funding that will be coming to the state. And this is a, a wide variety of different funding. Some of it's transportation, roads, water, climate, resiliency, just a bunch of different uh, areas of funding. The biggest one that um, working for the Blackfeet tribe was broadband infrastructure funding that, that will be coming to the state. There was a few bills that uh, pertain to broadband that we were working on. Um, Senate Bill 174, which is uh, a bill that allows counties to be able to apply to the state directly and where they have kind of more of a, a say about the developments within their county borders, uh, working with ISPs uh, to do the work in their communities. You know, seeing that being passed, you know, that policy being passed, giving that type of power to the counties, you know, that's something that we we're like, hey, the tribes should have that too as well. And so we drafted House Bill 804, um, which was sponsored by Tyson Running Wolf. And House Bill 804 would ensure that tribes were properly engaged and consulted for funding applications that uh, had to do with broadband development within their reservation borders. Um, this is crucial because most reservations are checkerboarded, which means um, they're either state fee land or tribal trust land. 
and it looks like a checkerboard if you were to look at a map. And uh, in past funding rollouts, uh, funding would, you know, these rural telecom companies have the right of way within the reservations on fee land. And so they would develop on the fee land and once that development hit trust land, that development would stop. And on a lot of reservations, um, you could see like wires hanging out of the ground where they just stopped um, development. And this development left a lot of tribal communities unserved, underserved. And, you know, that was just the first, you know, tip of the iceberg, you know, going down later on down the road. Representative Tyson Runningwolf, who introduced House Bill 804, gave substantial evidence of where there was a lack of communication between private internet companies and tribes, showing the need for this bill, regardless of what funds say they are allocated for. Jade Barr, on behalf of Montana Budget and Policy Center, also spoke in support of the bill and said she was assigned to follow the Commission for the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, and she stated that there was no Native American representation on the commission and that she noted it being unclear how the department was consulting with tribes for broadband projects. We're really trying to ensure that you know tribes had a seat at the table when these telecom companies are applying for funding on their behalf. And they want to ensure that when they're applying for that funding, that that funding reaches the home or reaches, you know, end line, hospitals, governmental buildings. That Hospital 804 was, you know, a long process. You know, it was, it flew through the house, but um, it took about a month before we got, uh, we got a vote on the, in the Senate committee. And there was a really strong pushback from these rural telecom companies who, for the Blackfeet Reservation, they took over uh, their service area from former uh, Three Rivers Telecom. And so, you know, they can directly apply now to the state, but all these other tribes are having to work with their rural telecom providers who haven't been properly developing within their communities. You know, what we saw in the transaction of the service area from Three Rivers to the Blackfeet tribe was a lot of outdated, unsafe equipment. And this is a reality on all the reservations. And not only that, but we also found that these rural telecom companies are receiving, um, it's called high cost funding, funding that is meant for maintenance or development for their service areas, mm. um, which includes tribal reservation areas, and none of that money being accounted for, and no developments happening. It just always promises, like, you'll get it, the, you'll get it this year or next year, you're going to get internet, it never happening. Kind of just like a, a simple lack of communication between the telecom company and the community yeah. or the tribe, yeah, tribes, just yeah. not letting them know the options, letting them know what's yeah, possible, what's and then just it. moving on without getting any input. Yeah, and tribes have their maps. They know where the tribal houses are. They sure. they could help in the planning process. It's, you know, those attempts that should be done in good faith, you know, the engagement, the consultation with the tribes, but they just haven't occurred because... The language um, isn't there at the federal level. To mandate it. To mandate it, yeah. And so um, we were trying to codify that through House Bill 804 at the state level to ensure. And and this is also advocacy that the federal government is, is giving tribes as well, that you need to be aware of this process. It's going to be happening fast, and you have a say in this. And we were hearing from the National Telecommunication uh, Information Administration that 
tribes have this opportunity to say, yes, we were properly uh, consulted with or not, and that could smudge an application, a state's application for funding to, to uh, NTIA. We want to say that you know, we're working with the state, but the reality was is that you know, there was so much pushback from state senators, um, Broadband Montana, or Montana Broadband, mm -hmm. which is the member association uh, of all rural telecom ISPs in the state. And you know, their pushback against our involvement as tribes in the process. So they're primarily pushing back against creating mandates for this yeah, proper communication to occur. Yeah. Okay. And, and there was uh, two bills, uh, a Democrat and a Republican bill, bills that would uh, reestablish a commission that oversees uh, the funding when it reaches the state and uh, oversees applications and provides you know, advice to the governor's office when he makes the awards. Um, there was House Bill 484, uh, which was sponsored by um, House Representative Katie Sullivan. And what this did uh, was provided a, and this was the Democratic uh, attempt at this, at creating uh, this commission, created an equal uh, amount of House and Senators uh, from both parties, and then also provided a, uh, a tribal representative on the commission. Mm. You know, in comparison, the Demo or the Republican uh, version, which was uh, House Bill or Senate Bill 531, didn't include any Native participation, and would have been a Republican, you know, kind of influenced commission. And so, this pushback was seen in testimony, uh, in hearing. Uh, definitely, Senate Bill 531 kind of like when we brought up, you know, there, there should be a Native American on this commission. You know, there was uh, statements made like Native Americans didn't have the work ethic to be part of this commission, or that there were proper consultations with tribes in this process, and the reality was that there wasn't proper in, uh, consultation. And we didn't get a, a Native American on that commission, but Democrats did um, get an equal playing field for that commission with uh, equal representation. For political parties? Yeah, okay. yeah, and so um, there were some successes at that, and you know, it was a hard road. Um, there's still uh, a lack of accountability, you know, for tribes in this process. And so that's what we're, you know, we want to show uh, the federal government these attempts at the state level to try to codify this language and, and the pushback that we received so that they can make the uh, the proper movements at that level, where they're passing law. Or, I know that it's written as rules right now, but that doesn't give enough teeth. So this is something that can happen in the coming months, say? So d even though the session's over, obviously. Applications will be made this year, and okay. so uh, and, and states will be awarded. And so we want to ensure that whether the White House or the federal government NTIA is hearing this advocacy because the laws can be changed right now and then we want to show them our attempt at the state level and the pushback that we received so that they can make that yeah the, those movements okay so then also for listeners for an advocacy ask would it also be for you know do constituents have any power to give any opinion or say on it would it be more for like tribal councils 
to keep their voice up and advocate for it? Or what would be the main asks for listeners for advocating? I guess tribes and I mean, even individual um, voters, you know, like we live on this reservation and there's tribal and non-tribal communities here who don't have proper internet access. And so in the right world and in the way that this funding um, was created was that it's all rural America, which includes tribal communities. When we say rural America, it's not, you know, it's not just our non-Indian communities, it's the reservations as well. And so guarantee that by changing the laws to ensure that there's tribal participation in the process. I asked Patrick if there's anything else he wants to share regarding this past legislative session. Anything else that he walked away with or he heard from other members of the Montana American Indian Caucus speaking to. You know, with all the, the contention of the supermajority and the harmful bills that were coming down the pipeline at the last minute, and the Senate uh, voting to adjourn was, you know, a double-edged sword, sword, essentially. We had a couple of bills that in the Native Caucus wanted to get through um, that didn't get through uh, because of that. But it did stop a lot, of the, a lot of these bills from getting amended to become passable. That was something that, you know, that was important for my experience to witness. It's, it's not just the votes, but how do you, how do you use your power in, in crucial times? Seeing that was, you know, was powerful because there was Republicans who voted to adjourn as well. And so that, that, that was important to see. Um, but, you know, also being there when, uh, during the vote to silence House Rep Zoe Zephyr. A quick note here. Patrick was referring to Representative Zoe Zephyr, who in late April was officially barred from the chamber's floor, anteroom, and gallery for the remainder of the Montana legislative session. This move to remove Representative Zephyr from the House floor came in response to words that Representative Zephyr said while she was speaking out against Senate Bill 99, which was legislation that restricts gender-affirming care for transgender youth. Representative Zephyr is herself a trans woman, and before the vote took place to officially bar her from the House, the House Speaker made a decision to not recognize Representative Zephyr during the floor debates, which caused verbal protest from members of the public that were present in the gallery, which then led to riot police handcuffing these members of the public and removing them from the gallery and officially arresting seven of the members of the public. You know, you see what was happening in Tennessee a little bit before that day, about two weeks, three weeks before, um, because of my advocacy for broadband, part, or native participation in broadband. The uh, director of administration for the governor was trying to ban me from the building or get me removed from the building. Because of that bill specifically? Because of our attempts, you know. Hmm. You know, I felt it, you know, this like inhumane way that these like house reps and senators look at you know look at minorities lgbtq plus this year or native americans you know like i walk in the halls and like i said you know like they'll smile in your face but stab you in the back and when they're having a bad day they're not smiling in your face you know you see the discrimination daily and you know as citizens of montana you know um, and definitely the beauty in the state and and being able to you know work together, you know, or, you know, be communable, uh, be hospitable to each other. This was going in the total opposite way. 
whether it be like the House Speaker or min, uh, Minority Leader making these decisions to remove Zoe as a party who speaks about being a patriot and, and understanding like the importance of America and freedom that they're going against their own values. And we as voters should recognize that as um, attacks on democracy, on our First Amendment rights. It was, it was a very, you know, the, the advocacy of the trans community com coming into the Capitol, you know, they were, they were seen and they were heard and they were felt. Um, I remember one of their rallies, everybody laid on the ground and, and screamed. And it was like, that was, you know, super powerful because, you know, coming as a Native American to the Capitol and understanding, you know, like, uh, you know, the discrimination we felt faced, the massacres that we faced, hearing those screams in the Capitol was like, like hearing policy being passed when, you know, the Calvary was sent to go kill at the Baker massacre or, you know, or any other massacre that occurred, wounded knee, you know, that policy was passed in those halls that are meant to kill communities. And the way that they attacked the trans community this session and hearing those screams and knowing the history that, you know, LGBTQ plus two-spirited have faced in the past, that those screams are real, yeah. And it was it was just so powerful that day, and then it led up to uh, led up to when Zoe was banned, and it was just I don't know it was a hard day that day too. And then give good opportunity to talk to these Republicans who are so patriotic, you know, like what are you guys doing? What is this? Yeah, that would, it was it was a roller coaster for sure. A lot of these people's egos are so big that they don't realize the impact, they're, they're just doing it because someone's paying them, paying, helping their campaign. Or it's the voices that they're hearing on the national level about this is what you need to stand up for and this is the right thing to stand up for, right? And you hear that enough times that you think you are on the right yeah. side. Yeah, and it's like, just wait until someone tries to attack your community. With the Montana Indian Caucus, was there any opportunity or moment after the session ended or towards the end of the session when the caucus got together and kind of just had a moment of we meet every we met every tuesday we had dinner okay. every tuesday yeah was there any like not debrief but more just a connecting you know i think we we're all just glad to get out of there you know yeah just taking that energy on every day bears on you you know bears on your emotions and your mental state and so and then like uh, a few of them turned out. So, you know, now it's retirement for a couple of them. It's just, you know, we did our job, it's 90 days, and then now we're moving to the next thing, which is elections. And like, uh, he's a director of, uh, he was a director of the Indian Caucus. Uh, his name's Lance Forstar, but uh, he's running for uh, Frank Smith uh, spot. You know, it's the next generation's opportunity to take on you know, what, what the uh, responsibilities are for sure. Indian country in the state. Are there messages or, you know, kind of moving forward, you know, not, it's, it's constant work and it's not, you know, rose colored glasses or anything, but are there things that 
you either saw moments of or seeing things that can be built on of going forward for the next session of just a vision of what you see the potential could be for representation, for respect, you know, of what at that time in the Capitol can be in those months for Native representation. Well, I'm hoping that the Republican Party, you know, looks at themselves in the mirror. I know that this group, you know, the Freedom Caucus and kind of like the organizations that they represent, um, they had a, uh, this is a resurgence of them that they were around during the 70s and the Republican Party kicked them out of the party then and that this might be a good time to do that for them too as well. The redistricting process, I'm, I'm very hopeful that that process will uh, produce a more moderate Montana. You know, democracy's not pretty, it's not fast. And it's like uh, realizing what tools we have and, and trying to build this next election cycle into something that produces much more representation for our communities than what we witnessed this last cycle. Red Medicine will be uh, in tribal communities uh, throughout the state going forward here this next election cycle. We're going to be looking for workers, community organizers in their communities. We're going to be throwing events, just encouraging our tribal communities you know, to get educated definitely on this past session and, and be ready for when we come to your community. Thank you so much to Patrick Yawaki Peltier for sharing with us. You can follow his team's civic engagement work under Red Medicine LLC on both Facebook and Instagram, and his other team's effort, the People's Food Sovereignty Program, also on Facebook and Instagram. You can also reach out to them there to find out how to support both of these entities. You can find links to those social media handles, as well as introductory articles to a lot of the things that we discussed today in this episode's show notes. This episode is made possible through support from Headwaters Foundation, who's working side by side with Western Montanans to improve the health of our communities. Headwaters is committed to supporting the health and sovereignty of Native Americans through their grants and partnerships. Learn more at headwatersmt.org or find them on Instagram and Facebook. This episode was recorded on the homelands of the Salish, Kootenai, and Kalispell people who interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years and still do today. Thank you all so much for listening. We appreciate it if you're able to share this episode with others and subscribe to the Stories for Action podcast. Find out more about all of our work, including films and storytelling workshops at storiesforaction.org and check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Stories for Action. Thank you so much for being a part of our community where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to create human connection and advance a thriving planet for all.